0: Amigos amigos de TLV1, me encuentro en South Bend, Indiana, con el doctor E. Michael Jones y por pedido del director de TLV1, Juan Manuel Soaje Pinto, le voy a hacer una entrevista para todos los amigos de Argentina y Hispanoamérica. Hello, doctor Jones. Luis, how are you? you? The same to you. Well, the first thing we have to mention is that Luckily, after some time, we have a translation of Jewish revolutionary spirit and its impact on world history.
1: That's right. In Spanish, the Spanish translation. Thanks to Luis, translated the whole thing. Show him how thick that book is. <laughs> yes. I'm sure the,
0: the Spanish-speaking audience will enjoy it. It's yes. a wonderful book. You cannot stop reading it as, soon as when you get it. 32 chapters, one introduction, one epilogue and every chapter more attractive and fascinating than the other. Well,
1: thank you. And I'm sure the the translation is better than the original.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hope it's not, uh, at at least it deserves the the opportunity Mm. that you gave me. Right. Well, uh, since we are going to talk about uh, have this book, I would like you to comment on uh, the title of the book itself. What is the Jewish revolutionary spirit?
1: Well, uh, there, originally, I had the, the, the working title was The Revolutionary Jew, and uh, we thought that over for a while, and we realized that didn't capture what I was talking about here, because uh, you don't have to be a Jew in order to act like a Jew. And when you talk about Jew, you're talking about something that it could be biological. And then as soon as you start talking about something that's biological, you end up in the whole racial issue and then the whole creation of anti-Semitism in the 19th century. So that didn't cover cover it. Uh, But also, there was the fact that there were people uh, throughout history who understood this spirit uh, and they uh, adopted it and they acted according to it and they weren't Jews you know, all throughout history. Uh, so the, the Jews it, it, by themselves could not have done, had this impact on history without this spirit. So what, what is the spirit? Uh, we go back to the, to the foot of the cross, the beginning of this. This is the, the Jewish people now. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Messiah has come, and the Jewish people have to decide, are we going to accept him? Or reject him are we going to accept him on his terms or does he have to accept us on our terms well the jewish people rejected jesus christ and they rejected the logos incarnate when they did that and when you reject the logos you become you reject the order of the universe and when you reject the order of the universe you become a revolutionary and that's what that spirit is it's the revolutionary spirit that has grown up alongside of Christianity, step by step by step. The Catholic Church became the cutting edge of Logos in human history, and the Jews became the cutting edge of revolutionary anti-Logos. And it's been that way for 2,000 years.
0: In Argentina, we had a great theologian, Father Julio Menviel, who wrote a a much smaller book than this, El Judío en el Misterio de la Historia, The Jew in the Mystery of History. and I find that the, both books are complementary because uh, Father Manviel's thesis is somehow beautifully illustrated by all the historical research work and data that you have poured into this book. So every one of those chapters, from the very beginning till the neoconservatives, going through the Anabaptist rebellion, Protestantism, the rise of masonry, Uh, the Jewish, the Black Jewish Alliance, uh, all of them illustrate
1: this uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit acting in history all along. Right. I I wrote this book 11 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that, and in that period of time I'm convinced that this is a a category of reality. This is not just a a fiction of my mind, this is a category of reality. So just to to give you uh, an instance, uh, in the spring, I was contacted by a man from Armenia. There's a war going on there now. Uh, and I thought I should look into uh, if I'm, he invited me to go to Armenia, I should look into this. And I looked into it. And what did I discover? The Jewish revolutionary spirit. Again, I, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't think it was going to be there. But you can't understand the Armenian genocide unless you understand the role of that the jewish revolutionary spirit played with both the young turks and with the armenian uh, uh, nationalists the dashnaks and the hunchaks
0: it will be very interesting uh, to read uh, a new chapter that you will, you will are planning to add to this book right right, right on the, on yes that question
1: yes because both of these groups had their origins in russia because the young are both young Armenians and young Turks went to European universities and at the end of the 19th century you picked up the Jewish revolutionary spirit. It was literally uh, a cell in, in St. Petersburg of Nata Volia, the People's Will, uh, which was uh, the terrorist organization, the Jewish terrorist organization that ended up murdering the Tsar and uh, Lenin's older brother was a member of that group.
0: Some important elements uh, of this Jewish revolutionary spirit is that there are messianic expectations. The, their, uh, the fact that they all have always been waiting for a messiah, which always turns to be a false messiah, trying to develop heaven on earth, and, uh, and, and that is not possible. But nevertheless, they try to implement that through different means. Which are the means that the Jewish revolutionary spirit uses in order to achieve its revolutionary
1: purposes? Well, it often comes down to military means. So uh, immediately following the crucifixion, what Jesus prophesied did happen. And the Jews rose up in rebellion against the Romans. Uh, and uh, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Uh, a huge moment in human history because this means the Jews, they have no, no sacrifice, uh, no temple. No priesthood. No priesthood. Well, the only thing now that has a sacrifice, a temple and a priesthood is the Roman Catholic Church. is the Catholic Church. So they have nothing. And at that point, the whole system of the Mosaic Covenant is over. And they always, at the same time, uh,
0: subvert Christian order, natural order, and even supernatural order. And they, at, at a natural level, they use two important means, which we have always, always uh, investigated, uh, which is the, the sexual revolution and, and usury. Two important elements in this revolution that right. they carry out. You right. Can you comment on
1: that? Yeah yeah the, well, I didn't know the, so so there was a, a, to get the the big picture, you have to understand that there are rich Jews and there are revolutionary Jews, and they collaborate. So I mentioned this in this book uh, when hein, when uh, Balzac was walking through Paris, he saw Heinrich Heine, the revolutionary, the German Jewish revolutionary, walking arm in arm with James Rothschild, the richest man. In, in, in Europe, well, how did it, this? the revolution was against the rich, wasn't it? Isn't that the whole point? No, because the common denominator was their Jewish uh, heritage and also the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So you fast forward to today. We are now in a revolutionary situation in the United States of America. Um, the world has seen you know, the riots that came about from the George Floyd uh, when George Floyd died. Well, it's the same configuration, except now it's George Soros, he's the rich Jew, and he's funding groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, which are the revolutionary groups on the ground. It's very
0: interesting because uh, there are some chapters in the book uh, Lorraine Hasbury, uh, the chapter on the, uh, what was the name, the Bosco Sc- Boys.
1: Scottsboro Boys? Scottsboro Boys.
0: Scottsboro Boys, and um, the, the, the chapter on Leo Frank, which show that uh, de- Black Lives Matter has has roots in all, all of those right. Uh,
1: antecedents. Right. You can't understand Black Lives Matter unless you understand the Black Jewish Alliance, and the Black Jewish Alliance came into being uh, with the death of Leo Frank. Leo Frank is the only Jew who was ever lynched in the United States of America. He owned a pencil factory uh, in the South. Uh, He was tried and convicted of murdering and raping Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old employee of the the factory. Uh, The the Jews got behind this cause. They made it their cause in America. All of the press uh, uh, was uh, convinced that uh, Leo Frank was innocent. But the courts kept reaffirming the decision. They, you know, Yes, he's guilty. Yes, he can be executed. So the final straw here was that the, the governor uh, commuted his sentence on the last, his last day in office. And the situation was so tense. There were basically 2,000 men marching, armed men marching on the governor's palace. Uh, and the governor escaped. He went to New York, of course. Uh, the Jews uh, treated him like a big hero in New York. Uh, but the uh, people in Georgia decided to take the law into their own hands and they lynched him. The Jews declared war on the South at that point. And they created organizations like the NAACP, which was a it's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Nobody uses the term colored people anymore, but that was a Jewish organization. And the man who discovered this was Marcus Garvey, a black nationalist. From Jamaica who showed up at headquarters? There were no black people. It was all Jewish lawyers at this at this operation.
0: Well, this uh, Jewish spirit is interesting because you you discuss in the book. There's a beautiful chapter on Juliano, Julian the Apostate, then the, the, the situation of Jews in Spain, the converso problem, the It's very interesting your discussion of how the, 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 the Jews who left Spain and went to the low countries, Holland, Belgium, and then they moved to England, and from England to the United States. And, and that spirit is always developing. Uh, and it, it has grown. It has grown stronger and stronger to the point where today uh, they rule ruled the world, and uh, very little opposition is possible. But in the past, the Church knew how to deal with this problem, and it even had a doctrine, sic judeus non, wasn't it? Right. What can you comment on that?
1: Well, yes, yeah, so uh, when the, the Jews had their second tr- attempt at rebellion, that was the Simon Bar Kokhba rebellion, 60 years later, and at that point, the Romans came in and obliterated Jerusalem. Nobody, there was an archbishop 100 years later who had never heard of Jerusalem. It was completely obliterated. The Jews were scattered throughout uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, and then the Roman Empire collapsed. And then the church found itself in a position where it had to adopt uh, rule. They had to take over the, the government of this Empire that it all, uh, had collapsed and once they took over they became the de facto governing power they had to deal with the Jews and so over a period of uh, 1,500 years they developed a policy and the policy was known as secret you Norm. began I think with uh, Leo the Great uh, and it's the Latin phrase means uh, just as the Jews and then there's a dot 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 so just as the Jews Just as no one has a right to harm the Jews. That's the first part. No one has a right to harm the Jews. No one has a right to disrupt their religious services. No one has a right to desecrate their cemeteries. But it's two-part. And the other part of it is the Jews have no right to disrupt a Christian culture. So you have no right, the Jew has no right to uh, ridicule the faith of the majority of the people. And more importantly, they have no right to undermine the morals of the Christian people so this went back and forth for centuries and there are letters uh, from the Pope to Poland telling Polish girls you're not allowed to work for Jewish employers you can't be a maid in a Jewish household because the Jew will invariably exploit the situation and try and seduce you you know so you cannot do this of course the Poles ignored that and they got in trouble because they ignored it but I think it, pro- it provided a kind of modus vivendi For Christian Europe you could not allow Jews to become citizens they were not citizens they did not share in the goals of a Christian society and this this lasted until the revolutionary era arrived with Napoleon the French Revolution then Napoleon as the vehicle the vector of French Revolution and so Napoleon has imperial ambitions he's going to go to Russia he's going to attack Russia and he needs the support of the Jews so he emancipates the Jews. Mm-hmm. He says the Jews are now citizens. So there were some
0: messianic expectations concerning Napoleon, for example.
1: Napoleon was considered the Messiah. There were Jews. So when, so when he finally got on his march to Russia, the Jews in the shtetl would put up pictures of Napoleon as the Messiah. So Napoleon emancipates the Jews, he goes to the Battle of Jena where he defeats Russia, and on his way back he stops in Strasbourg and the people of Strasbourg are completely upset because of the emancipation of the Jews, they say you made a big mistake. Because these people have no loyalty to France, and they're using the rights of citizens to exploit their fellow citizens. They have no loyalty to France. They consider other Frenchmen a completely alien, hostile group of people, and the only uh, way they can deal with this is by cheating them. So this, so that began right then, and so uh, one hundred years after the French Revolution, Chivalta Catolica does a three-part series on the Jewish question. 1890 we're talking about, 101 years after the French Revolution. And the conclusion is uh, any country that abandons the laws created by Christian kings will end up being ruled by Jews. Now, this is the official magazine of the Catholic Church. This is their assessment of this experiment in toleration, or the experiment of giving Jews citizenship, for a hundred years, it's not as if we're you know we're just going to have a, a six months experiment. This is a hundred years, and this is what happened. And there was this huge animosity against Jews in France at this time.
0: Now, Jews have been involved in most impo- the most important revolutionary processes. They have been involved, of course, in in the development of communism. Right. Uh, they have been involved in the in the rise of masonry, and and. and The French Revolution. They have been involved in the modern revolution through psychology and also supporting abortion, homosexual marriage. However, if you mention these facts, they feel criticized, and you cannot criticize Jews unless you want to become an anti-Semite or uh, why is it that you cannot criticize Jews nowadays? Uh,
1: uh, Voltaire said, if you want to know who rules you, uh, which uh, look to the group you cannot criticize. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the head of the NAACP, a black man, by the name of Rodney Mohammed, He quoted that, and he was fired from his job. So it proved the point that he was trying to make. Um, you're right. What you're sa- so we have to define the term anti-Semitism here, because it gets used... Uh, to end any discussion. So the point that uh, we need to make here is that uh, what do we mean by anti? What do they, what does the real meaning? The real meaning is a kind of racial or biological determinism. That's the term uh, that Wilhelm Marr created in 1871 with his book, De Sie des, Jud- des Judentums über das Germanentums. So it's a biological way of dealing with a theological problem, and that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. Hitler was the best example of trying to deal with a, 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 a solve a theological problem with biological tools. It's not going to work. Okay. But what does it mean now? Well, it means anyone who criticizes a Jew mm-hmm. is an anti-Semite. And this this absolutely outrageous violation of any sense of justice or, or freedom of speech is now being imposed on us through the internet by one, basically one organization. The organization is the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, mm-hmm. which came into being at the time of, of Leo Frank. Mm-hmm. So you can say exactly the same thing that a Jew says. You can say, for example, that uh, the Jews are behind gay marriage. If you say like, that, like Amy Dean did in. Well, if Tikkun, you say like, that, they call you an anti Semite, but then what I'm going to say, well, wait a minute, all I'm quoting is Amy Dean. Right. And she wrote this article in Tikkun magazine. She's a Jew, she wrote it for a Jewish magazine, and she's bragging about it. Well, that's. <laughs> there's this double standard. She can say it, and that's fine. If I say it, I'm an anti Semite. We're saying exactly the same thing. This is an intolerable situation. We have to deal with this situation right now because the Jews are now, they've, they've always been, they've always been the avant-garde of the revolutionary movement. And the revolutionary movement in this instance, as in many instances, is allied with the oligarchs. The, the, the revolutionaries are the proxy wars of the oligarchs and they are trying to abolish representative government and any type of sense that the economy is there for the, the people. Mm-hmm.
0: Additionally, being this Jewish revolutionary spirit a category of reality, as you describe, well, uh, if we if we cannot uh, understand this category of reality, we, we cannot understand history and, and the, the many troubles that we have in our contemporary days, right? Right. Uh, you have coined a phrase which uh, accurately describes this situation. You, you have called this Jewish privilege, yes. haven't you?
1: Yes. Well, can you explain that? Yes. Actually, there was. I just received an article today in The Forward, which is a Jewish magazine, and all of the Jews who are with, at their computers tweaking the algorithms to make sure that the, they, you see what they want you to see and not what's out there, they have now realized that there is a meme or some type of thought circulating in the Internet, and it's called Jewish privilege. Now, here in the United States, we have a phrase called white privilege. That's the acceptable phrase. In other words, you're supposed to feel that white people have some type of special privilege. It's the exact opposite. The white, any group that is white is automatically a bad group because they're automatically racist. And you can deprive them of their rights without any uh, fear of uh, or repercussion. And that's precisely what happened in Charlottesville. When the group identified itself as white and they showed up, they were going to lose, okay? So now, I just—I am the one who created this term, okay? And I'm not saying that uh, uh, because uh, I, my name is not mentioned in this article, okay? But two years ago, The Atlantic, which is now a Jewish magazine, used to be a Wasp or a Boston Brahmin magazine, now it's a Jewish magazine, they did an article on the spread of anti-Semitism in the Internet, and they mentioned my book, my ebook, when I was on Kindle, and it was called Jewish Privilege. I invented the phrase, and they identified that in 2018, and they said that this book was a bestseller on Amazon Kindle because that's what Amazon Kindle said. So I'm the one who launched the phrase. I'm not getting any credit for it, but the, the more important thing is, not whether I get credit but the idea, as soon as you under, you see the idea, you understand it. And so many people are reacting because no one had said it before. You know, true wit is nature to advantage dressed. What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. So this was oft thought, but no one had put it into words until I did it with that, that e-book and then it took off, and now it's spreading through the internet.
0: The one institution which should understand this, but it seems that they have forgotten uh, its meaning in history, is the Catholic Church. They started uh, dialogue with the Jews, and it seems that dialogue with the Jews has failed, uh, because the Church has lost uh, every
1: battle in the culture War so far. When did all start? It started with Vatican II. The the uh, Vatican II started when at the death of Pius the Pius Pius the non was mentis toward the end of his life. The church was paralyzed because all of the administration was concentrated in, in the hands of one man, and he could not do it. Even in, in the best of times, he couldn't do it. So. Um, Cardinal Ottaviani went to John XXIII at the conclave and said, we have to call a council because the church is in a state of crisis. And he wrote preliminary documents, which uh, I think are the best documents uh, to give you some sense of the intention behind the council. And he said, basically, there's a threat from the Soviets, but there's also a threat from America. And in there, it was implicit, but what were the threats? Well, Hollywood and psychoanalysis. Well, what do those two things have in common? They're both Jewish either organizations, concepts, or businesses. And so Ottaviani was approaching the whole Jewish question here uh, because he knew about it. I mean, ta that appeared during Ottaviani's lifetime. So he was aware of what was going on, and a man who had deep roots in the tradition, and then for some reason his Documents were pushed aside, and a new agenda took place. Now, one of the chapters is on the Second Vatican Council here, and something this important is not going to go unnoticed. So, there were two attempts to subvert it that we know of. The one was by the CIA uh, through Mal, uh, through um, John. John Courtney Murray and uh, Time Magazine. Time Magazine was the propaganda ministry of the United States. Harry Luce had direct contacts. With uh, the CIA, C.D. Jackson was on the, uh, uh, the payroll of both the CIA and Time Life at the same time. And they tried to overthrow the church's teaching on church and state, which uh, Dave Wemhoff's book, uh, John Courtney Murray, Time Life and the CIA, shows that they did not succeed, but they tried. The other big attempt was the Jewish attempt, and that was through Malachi Martin, the Jesuit, who was a protege of Cardinal Bea. And his job, he became an agent of two Jewish organizations, B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Committee. And they paid him through outrageous royalties for books that didn't really sell very well. And that was true to the end of his life. He could always get a lucrative contract from uh, uh, big New York publishing firms because of the service he did there. So his his job was to uh, have the church declare that the Jews did not kill Christ? And Count
0: Leon de Poncin tried to in- enlighten cardinals
1: about these questions, but seemingly. Oh, he did do. He did, he a, did. a good job. And mm-hmm. He did succeed in enlightening because he exposed the uh, Jules Isaac who was the man who was basically talking to Cardinal Bea? He went to John Twenty-Third. John Twenty-Third referred him to Cardinal Bea, and he got the ear of Cardinal Bea and he started talking about the teaching of contempt and all the bad things that the church said about Jews over the centuries. Well, the big question here is, well, d- did they deserve <laughs> to be criticized? Does their behavior uh, sometimes merit criticism? And if you do criticize a Jew, does that mean you're an anti-Semite? Is it a sin to criticize a Jew? No. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus Christ committed a sin. Well, we know that Jesus Christ can't commit a sin. So it's not a sin to criticize Jews. Moses criticized Jews. But now suddenly we can't criticize Jews because of the Second Vatican Council. Now, just as with John Courtney Murray, the church, 2,000 bishops looking over this document, are not going to uh, say that the Jews didn't kill Christ. They're not going to do it. But that
0: lasts to this day. I think there is another influence which uh, forbids somehow uh, bishops, particularly American bishops, uh, not to speak clearly about these matters. And it is the question of Americanism, which is dealt with in that book you mentioned by Wenhoff, uh, with the question of the American proposition, right?
1: Mm-hmm. This was so the 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 church was supposed to adopt the American proposition and I've dealt with that uh, in my book slaughter of cities about the whole imposition of social engineering on the Catholics and the destruction of ethnic neighborhoods after World War two that was part of that uh, that was supposed to uh, go on there uh, this was um, Uh, The church was supposed to adopt the separation of church and state. Did not do it.
0: You have dealt wonderfully with the question of Jews and pornography in many places. Uh, And you have discussed very deeply the question of the sexual revolution in libido dominandi as a means of political control. And you have discussed also the question of usury, which they control, in the wonderful book, Barren Metal, a history of of capitalism as a conflict between labor and and capital. And usury. And usury. Uh, Now, uh, what can you comment on on these topics very briefly? Uh, The the sexual revolution you dealt with in
1: in Livido Dominandi and usury. I, I came about this one step at a time, one book at a time. So I couldn't write uh, Logos Rising until I had written The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I couldn't write Barren Metal if I hadn't written The Jewish Revolutionary so It's one thing that you learn something when you write the book and then you move on to the next step. So when I wrote Libido Dominandi, right, let, let's, let me take this back to the Kroll book. Uh, John Cardinal Crow and the Cultural Revolution, which was a turning point in my life because I realized the enemies were not in the church. They were outside of the church. So the beginning, the introduction is about Leo Pfeffer. And I said, uh, he, it, the, the talk he gave was called The Triumph of Secular Humanism. And at that point in my life, I accepted his vocabulary. In other words, I accepted the fact that there was a group of people called secular humanists. Well, at a certain point, actually, it was a rabbi who told me this. Uh, He started, Rabbi uh, Sam Dresner, who was a big fan of mine and a big, told all Catholics they should subscribe to Culture Wars magazine. But he wrote to me and said, Why do you always talk about the Jews? I said, What do you mean? I I didn't know I was talking about Jews. And then he starts naming the people, and I suddenly realized, Yeah, I am talking about Jews, but I hadn't named them as a category. Mm So I accepted Leo Pfeffer's uh, terminology, and I said, yeah, it's secular humanist. Well, no, it, it wasn't. When we're talking about the uh, disruption of prayer, the banning of prayer from public schools, or the promotion of gay marriage, or uh, the striking down of obscenity laws, or the overturn of usury laws, there's one group that has all this in common, and it's not secular humanists, it's Jews. And at a certain point, when I, I thought, I have to write. The, the point was when the neoconservatives took over American foreign policy with the George Bush administration, I thought, I have to see Jews as a category. I cannot go forward.
0: Well, there is an important book in this regard, which you have mentioned. It's The Israeli Lobby by Mir
1: Scheimer and uh, right. Walt. It came out around the same time that the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit came out. And they destroyed their careers by doing it. Mm-hmm. So it was proof that uh, uh, that you're not allowed to talk about this.
0: Now we have been faced in, in the last for the last uh, seven or eight months with a totalitarian hoax uh, all over the world, uh, where everybody has been confined, and uh, because of a, a respiratory disease which according to the most important immunologist, epidemiologist, does not kill anyone, except that they, it's old people and they have uh, other pathologies, but it's just a respiratory disease. And even President Trump has called it a hoax. Uh, and uh, you, you uh, wanted to, me to investigate the question between COVID-19, and the Jewish revolutionary spirit in Argentina. Uh, I found that the most important laboratory and a pharmaceutical empire in Argentina uh, is run by a Jew by the name of Hugo Sigman. And the vaccine that they are going to uh, inoculate uh, which has been developed in, at Oxford University, will be manufactured by this gentleman, who uh, is quite unscrupulous in his business practices. Uh, he, he was a member of the Communist Party, the guerrillas, he has connection with the in- Cuban intelligence, Hugo Sigman, can you can you see something like that here in the United States? This involvement of Jewish interests in this business vis-a-vis the goals of controlling Demographic go, uh, growth all over the world because it seems this vaccine will cause sterility that is will help reduce the growth of population like Bill Gates wants,
1: right? It's not. It's not immediately apparent here, okay? Because from a historical point of view, the whole idea of birth control and population control was a WASP idea. It was not Jewish, because the Jews simply were not uh, non-existent as a power in the United States of America during the 1920s, which is when this got started. Okay, you can read uh, read The Great Gatsby, uh, and you'll see a picture of a man. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was a Catholic, who wanted to go to Princeton, had a drinking problem, wanted to fit in with the WASP, ruling class elite. And then there's this Jew that shows up uh, um, based on the man uh, who fixed the uh, World Series, the Black Sox scandal in the World Series. They're peripheral figures at this point, and so they're not heavily involved in population control. The, the figure the, the figure that has moved... The Rockefellers were the moving force behind population control, and if you look, their successor is now uh, Bill Gates, and that's been medicine, and you have vaccines now. I did a whole history of population control, I uh, gave a speech in Kenya uh, at the time when everyone was thought they were going to die of AIDS. You probably remember this, you know? And then there was African AIDS. And that was even worse because it was heterosexual. It wasn't just homosexual. And so I went over there and I said, look, this is a hoax. There is no such thing as African AIDS." They're shocked. I'm telling you, I said this at a hospital. Who am I? I said, look, I am an expert. I have a PhD in American literature. I studied fiction. This is a fiction. I'm an expert on fictions. And everybody laughed, you know but the point here is so i went back to uh, kenya two years ago and not only did i go back to kenya i went back to the exact same room where i'd given the talk at the catholic university of east africa 17 years ago and i walked into the room and i said how many people here are worried about getting aids raise your hand well no one raised their hand that's gone that's over and it's been succeeded now by vaccines So AIDS was population control. The whole point of African AIDS was to get Africans to use condoms. That didn't work. Now we have vaccines. Now we have the Kenyan bishops telling people, telling Catholics in Kenya not to get the the, uh, Bill Gates tetanus uh, vaccine because it's covert birth control. It is a sterilization agent. So if you go, if it, this is not, so the, the, the if you want to talk about Jewish involvement, there was the Jewish professor at Harvard who was working with the Chinese, and uh, these are the people that created this COVID thing. So it's real, it's a weapon, and whether it got out uh, accidentally or deliberately is something we don't know right now, but he was heavily involved because Harvard was heavily involved. Because How was he involved? He created the wire. This is a microscopic wire that will allow you to splice genes, and that's what the bat lady did in Wuhan.
0: And also, I think he was caught by the FBI.
1: Somewhere. Right, he was caught by the FBI. There was all of this smuggling of biological agents from China, from Harvard to China, from Boston to China, and he was caught. Now, are we all going to hear? Are we going to hear about this? This is Jewish involvement at the highest level in something that has caused, if you read the press, it's unprecedented in human history. Is someone gonna be sued for this? Is Harvard going to be sued for this? That would be an interesting uh, concept. To a certain
0: extent, I, I, I'm I under the impression that this global confinement uh, would not have been possible without the aid, complicity, or open of the higher echelons of the Church because all churches all over the world were closed. Sacraments were not imparted any longer for
1: several months. How can you explain that? The best explanation is in Logos Rising because the beginning of the first chapter of that is Bertrand Russell and ultimate reality. So we're talking about the evolution of the concept of science. It developed in the West, it did not develop in the Islamic world, largely because of the Thomistic concept of secondary causality. At a certain point, science took on a life of its own and it became a religion, it's what it is today. Mm -hmm. And it's a religion because it is in possession of ultimate reality. Science. Science, and this, I'll begin by talking about Bertrand Russell. This is a man who was, I I, uh, quote, the publisher publisher is writing to bertrand russell who was uh, uh started off as a mathematician wrote principia mathematica and then during the 20s uh, he became an expert on everything on ultimate reality and the publisher says to him you're the guy who can explain ultimate reality to us so put well wait a minute you mean science science is ultimate reality so you come ahead to the covid crisis well we got a battle here mm-hmm. between science and religion. There's always been a battle, but now it's a real uh, crucial issue because one is, group of people is saying you've got to follow our rules. It's, it's one of the, as you, as you say, one of the unintended
0: consequences of this of this history. Science has been exposed as incapable of defining ultimate reality.
1: I think that I mean that all that logos rising is about the plan of human history. And there's a chapter on Hegel. And Hegel came up with the term of uh, de liste der vernunft, the cunning of reason. And so I think what we're seeing in our day, with this overreach, these are the oligarchs who lost control of the narrative in 2019 because of the internet. And now they are going to reassert control. And they are determined to prevent Trump from being reelected. And they overplayed their hand. That's the problem. They've overplayed their hand. They overplayed their hand. And that's the... So now, what you had was an American hierarchy that was... They were completely docile Americanists to a man. Even though Leo XIII condemned Americanism as as a heresy. Which means they pretty much accepted the fact that science could explain ultimate reality. I think they accepted that premise. And then suddenly uh, the churches are locked down. We they're they're shut down. We have to. Everyone has to wear a mask. You can only have certain number of people there. And then the church goes along with it. And then they suddenly realize, wait a minute, how is it that abortion clinics are still open? What about the gay bathhouses in? San Francisco, do they spread disease in places like that? You mean it's more dangerous to go to church than it is to go to a gay bathhouse? And the church awoke to the fact that they, this was being used as a weapon. COVID is being used as a weapon to destroy the church. So now there's pushback in San Francisco but also here locally, the diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Just a week ago, the head of the local health department in St. Joseph County announced all the churches will have to shut down completely until March of 2021. Well, they overplayed their hand and the bishop reacted and said, no, we're not going to shut down.
0: Coming back to uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, el espíritu revolucionario de los judíos y su impacto en la historia mundial, can we say that St. Augustine's, the City of God, uh, somehow gives the, the frame, the, the, the big um, frame to yes. your history?
1: Yes. Christopher Dawson said that Augustine is the man who discovered time, who understood time. Now, he was, he was a Platonist in his youth, among other things. And the Platonic world is the world of forms, and you know it's the world of forms because they never change. So the real world never changes. Well, we're confronted. I mean, Heraclitus was a Greek who tried to deal with the idea of change. We know that things change. Uh, So how do you resolve this issue? Well, Augustine uh, basically fused the Greek understanding of reality, which is basically that you had... They understood philosophy, but they didn't understand history. And the Hebrew, and the Hebrews understood history, but they had no philosophical sense. And you put these two things together and suddenly time has meaning. It's not just the number of motion. Human history has a meaning, it's, it has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, just the way Aristotle talked about a, a drama, a tragedy. And we as
0: Christians have a duty to decide to which side well so, of the two cities so he
1: said yes but it's going to be a contest and this is again you can see the the, the influence of someone like Heraclitus where you've got two opposites so you've got this the, the Catholic Church the city of God and the city of man is what he what he said city of God is love of God to the extinction of self And the city of man is based on love of self to the extension of God. And these two principles are at war with each other. And there will never be a resolution of this war until the end of time.
0: On this word, I thank you very much. On behalf of
1: all the Spanish-speaking world, I think we are going to manage to
0: give subtitles to this talk. And uh, once again, thank you to Mr. Peter Helland, who is here. And uh, see you in Argentina next time. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Muchas gracias.